0: Thank you, Raleigh. Some hard words in here, but also some words of grace. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would teach us from it tonight, that you would show us um, good things in it, things to uh, convict us, but also to give us hope, Um, and to show us grace. And we pray that you would do all that through your spirit. And in your son's name, we lift this prayer. Amen. Okay. Um, The the internet is, I I guess, like kind of created to shock us, right? But um, I got a real shock the other night. Like it got me good when I was digging into... Some of the details about this forthcoming book from one of my favorite authors, and he's, he's a humor writer, and I really i am convinced he's like one of the funniest people on earth. But the cover of his new book, I noticed, was like a real somber black, and so I was a little confused, and when I looked closer, I saw that according to the blurb, uh, the book is about the adulterous relationship that uh, the author's wife had with a neighbor, um, and, and about what it did to their marriage, which, praise God, is actually still intact. They're still together. And I think I was especially kind of jarred about this for a few different reasons. Uh, one, I, I don't know the author personally, but we do have some mutual friends, and because his books are, are like memoirs, I kind of like feel like I know him in that way. Sometimes you feel like you know somebody you don't really um, that's one reason. For two, um, a pastor that I know uh, lost his wife very unexpectedly last week. Um, in fact, the funeral was today. And so our, our whole presbytery, a lot of my friends are, are mourning a, a kind of different kind of broken marriage. And then three, I was actually at a wedding this past weekend and felt some of the, the palpable like excitement and hope and joy that comes with a wedding. And so I, I poked around a little more and I noticed a post from this author and I thought that it was so poignant that I wanna read you some of it. It's been a little bit lightly edited by me, but um, he, he wrote this. Many of you don't know this, but last year after 18 years, my marriage ended. I've been to many weddings over the years, including my own. And at none of those weddings did I ever hear a single officiant explain, really explain the crucible of suffering that awaits every married couple. They say things like, you'll have ups and downs. And we smile as if to say, yes, yes, the road shall be up and down and the river of life indeed rocky. And then later on in the post, he says, you can be shocked Buy it or you can gird the loins of your soul for the rodeo of heartbreak and hope that your skull doesn't get smashed by the bull of suffering. A year ago, our marriage ended and it was sad and it was ridiculous and at times even funny. We have a new marriage now and the new marriage is way better than the old one. The bull came for us both, and somehow we did not die, and we are still married. And now the bull is friendly and docile, and he pulls our family wagon into new frontiers of something real and beautiful. Uh, That sounds to me like an incredible story of marital redemption, and I cannot wait. To, to read this book, but it also sounds to me a lot like what is happening between God and the first humans in the garden. Marriage, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, is a covenant between a man and a woman. that's instituted by God. It's this thing that he gave us, but it is a, a shadow, a model, an arrow, pointing to the relationship between God and his people and ultimately between Christ and his church. And thus, God's relationship with Adam and Eve was something both like and beyond a marriage. And so the fall of Adam and Eve was both like and beyond adultery. In the garden, in other words, the the bull of suffering came, and that marriage, the covenant of works that we talked about uh, the last couple weeks, ended in tragedy. But in another way, like this writer, it was also the beginning of a new and better marriage. And so, properly speaking, that covenant, the covenant of works, has never actually ceased. Um, uh, But this day uh, in the garden that we're talking about tonight is also the first day of a new covenant. A new marriage between God and his people in which he promises to to harness the bull of of our suffering and to pull us by his strength into new frontiers of grace and, and mercy and peace. And so we have said that the story of redemption is, is uh, like a, excuse me, the story of scripture is like a four-act play, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So we've been in Genesis this semester. Um, but tonight is actually the beginning of act three, redemption, uh, an act that continues up until now uh, to this day and continues even in this room. Redemption is actually the story. It's the part of the story that we live in. And the restoration part is not far off. In fact, we'll talk about it a little bit tonight. So um, just two parts tonight. The misery and the marriage. The misery and the marriage. I'm turning this so my hand doesn't hit it. Okay. Um, first, the misery. Okay. At this part in scripture, the bottom has fallen out. Okay. The, the train has left the rails. The dumpster is a fire. If you want to think of it that way, whatever metaphor we want to use, even that metaphor has hit the fan. Okay, things are very bad. Adam and Eve have fallen. They have rebelled against their maker. They have committed a a spiritual and relational adultery. They have broken the covenant of works, the covenant of life And sin has entered the world and shame and death and all the nasty things. With it. So if you remember the verse that we ended on last week, verse 7 said this: Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay. Um, This is the ultimate, my dad is going to kill me scenario. Okay. Many of us know what that feels like, it's not good. Uh, Literally, death was the penalty for breaking the covenant of works. And so Adam and Eve, I think, expect to die here. Uh, They do not. Only by God's grace does that not happen instantly. And so it's why they hide themselves from the presence of God as he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That and uh, along with the crushing feelings of shame that they are experiencing. They, They know, in other words, that they no longer belong in the presence of God. They know it deeply. And so this creates a really profound feeling of of dislocation, of of wrongness, or we we talked about last week, alienation. Uh, Our relationship, or lack thereof, with God, I think will always play itself out in our relationship with others uh, and with ourselves. And and so the effects of the fall begin immediately uh, to sort of spiderweb out in all these different ways. So, for one, Adam and Eve are no longer at home with God, right? They're not comfortable with him. Uh, Therefore, they're alienated from their place. They're alienated from the garden. They're also alienated from themselves, but they're in their outer selves. They don't know who they are, and and in that, they they actually don't know their own bodies anymore, and, and thus the fig leaves. And they are alienated from each other. And so we see that, if you look at verse 12... The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, Adam blames Eve. He says, she gave me the fruit and he even subtly blames God. The woman that you gave me, he says. And while Eve in her turn blames the serpent. And so you see what's happening. It's blame shifting. It's, it's finger pointing. It's, it's failure to, to own up to their sin. What, what misery there is in this passage and in this moment what what brokenness what fear verse 9 Adam says i was afraid because i was naked so i hid myself i think that if we're being honest this moment in the garden is is really the first time that we see ourselves in the story uh, it's like we're looking in a mirror because we are dogged by the feeling that there is something wrong with us are we not We sew little coverlets of achievement or beauty or control or for the same reason we build social networks uh, of of people, people that make us feel good, that prop us up, that kind of tamp down the shame. We point to somebody or something else when we make a mistake, right? It's the professor's fault. It's the way my parents raised me. I was tired. I was drunk. I was lonely. I was anxious. I was just trying to blow off steam. And we also point to God often and say, this problem that you gave me, that's really the issue. Blame shifting, finger pointing, covering up. I will tell you, in my experience and for my money, the hardest part of Christianity, the absolute hardest part of Christianity... Is taking like a, a true theology of sin and making it your own personal theology of sin. In other words, the hardest part of Christianity is, is turning your pointing finger at everybody else into a thumb. Right? Uh, think of it this way. Okay? If you were to uh, walk around campus and you were to take a, a poll and the poll said, are you a Christian? I think a majority of people probably here at TCU would say yes. Um, but think about this, dive a little deeper on sin, for instance, and, uh, this is all very standard, historical, orthodox understanding of sin of our position without Jesus. But I think if you listen carefully, this is going to surprise even you, maybe some of you, even that grew up in the church, what if you were to ask in that poll, what if you were to ask yourself for that matter, do you believe that you are not basically good? Do you believe yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God enslaved by sin? In fact, and bent toward evil in every part. Do you believe your nature is corrupted and that you are wholly unable to will any true spiritual good? Do you believe you are dead in sin and that no amount of effort on your part could ever move you one inch closer to God? Do you believe that all of your righteous deeds are like a a polluted garment, that your heart is made of stone, that none is righteous? Not one, not even you, and that by virtue of your sin, you justly deserve God's displeasure and are condemned to his wrath and without hope, except for his sovereign mercy. Every word of that is in the Bible. But if you said that, that would be a very different, different poll, right? There'd be some different responses there. But I can tell you, anybody telling you that sin is anything different than that is, is wrong, including if you're telling that to yourself. The bad news is far worse than we give ourselves, um, the time or the space to contemplate. So why do I say all this? It's probably not your, you know, your favorite Tuesday night RUF experience maybe at this point, Uh, although we do have cereal, uh, to make it a little better. Um, why do I say all this? Because I really, I've, for various reasons. Um, but for one, I felt a little bit convicted. The author that I mentioned earlier said, essentially, he said, I've never heard a pastor explain, really explain the crucible of suffering that awaits every married couple. And so I I'm trying to, to tell you that the, the crucible is out there for you and it won't just be in your marriage. The passage is saying that that there is a crucible of suffering waiting in in your life, in your marriage. Yes, but also in your children. Verse 16, if you've met my children, you know uh, that it will be in your work. Verse 17, it will be in the place you live. Verse 18, it will follow you to your very grave. Verse 19, the crucible of suffering is not one. It is many. And you will find them in the most uh, uh, unexpected places in your life and at the most unexpected times. Which is why I was at a funeral today for a mother of four who is not yet 50. You will find suffering behind every door, under every rock, and in your own soul in this life. And all of it is the result of sin. Okay, Some of it will come from your own sin. Some of it will be from the sin of others that affects you. Some of it will be from just living in a a broken world, a world that does not work correctly because sin has entered it. But rarely will you be able to separate all three of those. And just to be clear, I am not lecturing you about this because some of you have experienced suffering that I don't know and, and could not imagine. Some of you have suffered far worse Um, and more than me. And so all of this is so that we can come to grips with sin and all its ravages. I think the first step to understanding sin is understanding your own and uh, refusing to cover it to blame shift, to hide from it. When uh, the newspaper, The Times of London, many years ago uh, asked readers to write in answering the question, What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back and said, Dear sir, I am. The thumb, right? That is the misery. Uh, And that is where repentance starts, is understanding sin, coming to grips with it. But that is not, of course, where the story ends. And so this is our second part, the marriage. Sorry, we have a little more misery left. So (laughs) hang in there a few more minutes. Uh, God deals with sort of the players in in this whole thing in this way. At first, he curses the serpent. So the mouth that was used to deceive Eve is is made to eat dust there will be an enmity it says between the woman and the serpent and their offsprings together we'll come back to that and as for adam and eve god does not actually use the word curse for their punishment which is significant but he does make it clear that their roles change and their lives become vastly more difficult And so uh, we don't have time to get into most of the details here. But in general, for Eve, there will be new difficulties in motherhood and marriage. For Adam, the creation mandate, the subduing of the earth will become a terrible burden to him. And in the end, death will come. That's what God means here when he says, for you are dust. He's calling back to creation. And to dust you shall return. And then lastly, in some ways, saddest to me, I don't, just the picture of this, Adam and Eve are, are put out of the garden. They're, in fact, it says they're driven out of this perfect garden, never to return. And that is where we live. We live outside of the garden, outside of that perfection and beauty and intimacy with God. But in all this sadness, there there is a a profound hint of grace here. It's actually two of them. This is the smaller one, but I think it's still significant. Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it this way in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, but before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home, And then she says, I love this part. And in another story, it would all be over and that would have been the end. But this is not that story. This is the gospel. In this story, redemption is like just opening its eyes. Okay. The the first glimpse that we see of it, the the gospel in miniature, just a little tiny. The the birth of salvation is actually in Genesis 3.15. So theologians call this the, the proto evangelium or the first word of the gospel. It's really easy to miss here. When God is speaking to the serpent, his last words are, are this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed. Another way to say that and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is he? Who is this person that uh, God is already talking about? Who is the he bruising, in fact, we learn later, crushing the serpent's head? It is Jesus. The answer to every good Sunday school question, right? It's Jesus. All the way back in Genesis, like practically moments after the fall, the trajectory of redemptive history is completely set. The seed of the woman is going to be at war with the seed of the serpent. But in the end, the seed of the woman will win out. And said so this is this moment in Scripture is both the end of a marriage and also the beginning of a renewed version of the same one. So God will not stop doing good to his people. The covenant of works can no longer save, though, right? Therefore, God creates a a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And this is the first word of it in which he in which God himself will fulfill all of the stipulations and everything after this in Scripture up to and including the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself is the, the working and the building and the growing in the outflow of this new covenant. So in this, there, there is grace even for Adam and Eve. Even for the, the first sinners. This tender grace that allows God to make, in verse 21, garments of skin. To clothe the man and his wife. And so the point is extremely clear here. That even in our sin, God meets us. Even when we say in our lives, I'm afraid, even when we hide ourselves, God comes to meet us. Do you remember what it was like when you were little to be in trouble and to be hiding? Gosh, I do. My son last week broke my my TV in my garage. He hit a baseball into it. He hid, more or less. (laughs) He was crying more than he was hiding, but... We know this feeling, and God comes to meet us in it. So when the shame of sin overcomes us, when we feel like an unfaithful spouse, when we feel exposed and laid bare and uncovered, there is God to meet us, to cover our shame, to care for us. The Jesus Storybook Bible, again. Puts it this way. It says, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And so when the old marriage failed, Jesus said, I will build a new one. He said, I will be the groom calling back an unfaithful wife. And and through my love on, on the cross and my power in the resurrection, she will be made clean. We will be made clean. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the story of redemption. It is a story of a new marriage taking the place of an old and broken one. And it's why the fourth act of this whole play, this whole arc of, of scripture, the fourth act ends in this way. In the book of Revelation, <clears throat> it ends with the, the bull um, of suffering becoming docile. I love that picture. Um, with this, this marriage, this new marriage made whole and then consummated, made perfect in heaven when we are with Jesus one day. We read it earlier as our call to worship, but uh, Revelation 19, 6 and following, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. In other words, Jesus is going to purify us once and for all. He's going to bring us into his perfect marriage he is the groom. We, the church, are his bride. And so if you're in Jesus, then uh, your sin, your unfaithfulness has been bought and paid for. And you are invited through the new covenant to a new and perfect marriage that's going to be lived out in a new heavens, in a new earth. And all of that is going to be because Jesus took, him, took it on himself. To say, I will crush the serpent. I will call my people to myself. I'll purify them. I will be their perfect groom. And though they are not perfect in me, they will be made bright and pure. Let me pray for us.